studying in 2009, right after the financial crisis. Short-term solution to a problem that did not take into account the long-term effect. The amount of high-value properties in the central of Dunga are even occupied. Hello everyone and welcome back to this episode of the Marginal Babble podcast. In this episode today I sit down and talk to Dr. Lucas Ultima out of the University of Essex to discuss the banking industry and how it's changed over time. The links to all research materials included in the episode are in the description down below and without further ado, let's get into the episode. What was your reason for getting into economics specifically? You know, was it just what you were interested in at school or was it something you sort of had a passion about? Or Yeah, I guess it was kind of a learning process for me. It was not like something I already planned on doing in elementary school or something, but like when it became time to decide what to study and stuff, I, was like, I liked the mix of um, it being a social science, so it's not, yeah. not a hard science, which is just about numbers and, and abstract things. But it still has some math in it and some like some quantifiable um, um, aspect. So I, I kind of like this combination, and that's how I got into it. And yeah, yeah I mean, that's what I liked about it. In, in fairness, and, and um, just how it just links into like so many other different subject areas. Like you did geography at school, links and that with urbanization, migration, healthcare, politics. It just kind of like you know you can really run the gauntlet in terms of its impacts and its sort of implications. Um, I guess the other question as well is like why macro. Because, I mean, just having a look at your research, you seem to do a lot of, yes. a lot of macro work, obviously the banks and sort of, sort of asset pricing and sort of variety of monetary policy as well. So like, um, why macro over micro or any other? I mean, I always liked micro as well, um, but I felt that micro is more like settled already. I mean, there's, um, that's, that's exaggerated, but um, many of the big questions in micro, I think we have good firm answers to them. Whereas in macro, lots of things still seem much more open, in my impression. Um, and I mean, I started studying in 2009, so right after the financial crisis. So I think that was a big impact for me as well. Oh, yeah, and yeah, understanding exactly. what, what happened. And, and yeah, that it, I mean, that's really at the heart of my research now and kind of followed me through. Out of curiosity of that, because you, like you started, was that at university you started, or was that at school? At so, university, yeah. At university. So, I imagine that there was a lot of, you know, you've gone into the course, I imagine that they were probably talking about that, you know, case study, you know. But obviously at that time, they would have necessarily known sort of what the impacts are. Did you notice any sort of differences between how your lecturers potentially perceived how the, how the crisis was going to shake out, what their thoughts were about it, and um, on how it actually is, the impacts actually manifested over time? Yeah, I mean, for sure, like, the, the aftermath was, was not clear at all in 2009 because, like, especially in Europe, it dragged on for a long time and there was kind of the second recession coming from more of a Eurocentric crisis. That was, of course, not predictable at, or nobody really predicted that in 2009. But I think the understanding of the causes was pretty well shaped already at that time. So I feel like in, in my first year, I had a, a lecture explaining the, the kind of things that led to to the financial crisis, to the banking crisis in, in the US. And and I feel like the, this understanding hasn't changed too much since then. So I think that was, like, in 2009 already somewhat well understood. Sure. I mean, I mean, going straight into it, I mean, right, you know, banking, you know, and the banking sector played a massive role in that, right? We had the subprime mortgage, you know, I'll call it a crisis, fiasco, whatever you want, whatever you want yeah. to call it. Um, how do you... Th- how has the impact of that 
has there already been any changes in legislation or you think perhaps the way we look at economics as a result of that and you know as we move into what many consider a, a very you know financial crisis potentially coming well so potentially coming at the moment do you see any difference in the ways or government institutions are actually dealing with it yeah, no, for sure. I mean, there were lots of changes, I would say. I mean, the whole understanding of the too-big-to-fail issue, the idea that banks, certain banks are too big to let them fail. and that Which is a common thing you hear, like a lot of, you know, particularly when, you know, they've bailed, been bailed out previously before as well. Um, yeah, so is, is that something that's sort of moved different in economic theory in terms of, like, whether banks should be bailed out or whether they should be? I mean, that depends on a lot of... <laughs> that's that's a very complicated question to answer. It's not something I can give a yes or no answer to. I mean, I guess. So the problem is always the incentives, right? So once sure. you like after the fact, uh, and in the financial crisis, it was probably the right thing to do, but to to bail them out because the, I mean, just seeing what happened when Lehman Brothers was not bailed out, um, how devastating the the effects of that were shows how yeah how essential it was to kind of keep them keep them running but the issue with that is that once banks understand that they may be bailed out if they um, get into trouble that this completely changes their decision making and and therefore from a research point of view it's it's much less clear whether we can say they should be bailed out or not and sure I mean I, I would um, I can only I don't know but I can only infer from that that they in more, only more likelihood be more or not sorry less risk averse in sort of their actions right, and the yeah. taking you know with the knowledge that you know in all likelihood they probably will be bailed and <laughs> they're bailed out if that if a certain situation come arrive um, and also I can understand you know I think there's sort of a lot of talk about it but banks you know they're, they're very institutional I mean I think to understand where we are with banking we have to sort of look back and sort of where banking has come from mm. um, and, which is obviously I don't know where you would even pick up on sort of the banking history but it got, you know it's intertwined with cash money currency and it's also intertwined with the fact you know I think even the um, the first um, paper money was even sort of banknotes basically in yes. the sense that you know it was basically an I, you know, I. It was a receipt from like the bank that I hold this, and you would trade the receipt exactly. basically yes. in around. Then that's what eventually became paper money, right? <laughs> and so, how do you think the institution, the banking, has changed over the years since? You know, I guess you I mean you can go back to the Roman, the Holy Roman Empire in terms of like it being drastically sort of spread throughout, at least in Europe anyway. Obviously, institutions of institute before that, and how it's changed, and how it's the the, the role of banks and in the industry has, has changed over time. Yeah, I mean, banks play lots of roles in... Like, modern banks, they, they play lots of roles. And it's not just one role that they play, but it's many separate roles, and they're kind of intertwined. But it's also, from a research point of view, sometimes not clear whether it's the right idea to have one institution perform all of these roles, or whether it would be better to separate them out and have, like, each role be performed by, by a different kind of institution. But certainly, like, banks... like also like doing one of these roles helped them have an advantage in, in the other one and that's kind of why they picked up doing different things and um, and then on top of that the whole globalization um, allowed them to operate across countries and in the US there used to be legislation for them not to operate across state lines but then this legislation was dropped um, and all of this led to banks like performing many roles and also 
few banks becoming very important players in the in the yeah I think that's a, I guess that's a kind of hit on there it's important to ask what a bank actually does and I think sort of the most of these you know rudimentary answer that it you know basically reallocates capital in the economy sort of more efficiently you know basically it takes people's at least in terms of like, we'll go retail banking I suppose or you know banking at the moment takes deposits from people that you know have stored up wealth and basically uses that as loans, loans to businesses and invest and just allows sort of more, um, I guess you could say lubricates the economy basically transferring resources mm-hmm. to where they need to be sort of more effectively um, but beyond that what, what roles do you think? I mean what you mentioned is already a mix of, of two roles that are basically separate but kind of are neatly combined by banks so the one role is from the point of view of the depositor also this kind of origin story that you told about like paper money originating so if you think about that very deeply it's the idea that like in early times um, you would need to carry around gold that's annoying that's risky it might be stolen (laughs) (laughs) heavy exactly also um, there used to be different countries and different they had like gold coins which were not recognizable easily so what people started doing as you said is like putting this um, gold into the bank and the bank writing this kind of paper money and then instead like the idea would be that paper money is basically just a, a claim on the gold sitting in the bank and then once people realized that this is actually more convenient they started trading directly these claims instead of um, like me the depositor first going to the bank to get the, get the gold and then use the gold to pay you so that's purely like the, the point of view of the depositor that's a role banks could still you know nowadays we have like online payments and stuff like that so this is a very modern version of the of the carrying gold around issue like you can't do online payments with cash for example so having having the banks provide these services for a depositor also protect your wealth um, all of this is useful but a bank could perform this by just basically storing cash so if you make a deposit at a bank put in 100 pounds um, the bank typically, as you know, will not just keep these one hundred pounds in um, in the vault. It will invest something, but that's a separate separate role. So let's so even if it would just um, provide this service of, of providing these deposits that can be used to make payments, that's already um, we understand this from our research that this is already helpful for for the economy. Now, on top of that, banks <coughs> so that. One step further is then to say that, okay, maybe um, because it is, it is a bit inefficient if the bank um, like keeps, so we call that reserves, right? If the bank keeps the, the cash or the gold in the vault, that's keeping reserves for the case of withdrawals. Now, if the bank understands that at any given point in time, only, say, 5% of depositors withdraw and never 100% at the same time, Basically, that means for the bank that it only needs to keep 5% reserves instead of 100% reserves. So it can use the, the remaining 95% to make investments. Mm. Um, and that is helpful also for me as a depositor. Now that depends on whether the bank is competitive or not and passes on these profits. But let's, for the moment, assume they do. Then the bank can basically use this and like make like cash doesn't pay any interest so it's not a very good um, savings vehicle so if the bank understands it that it only needs 5% of cash and can use the 95% to make investments um, even if the bank is not particularly good at making investments it's not better than me as an individual at making investments 
it is helpful for me if the bank invests the other 95% and then is able to pay me some interest on my, on my deposit. So that is still only from the point of view of the depositor, not uh, like what you mentioned before about like lubricating the economy and making like uh, ensuring capital is, is allocated more efficiently. I mean, it's some of that, but um, it's not yet assuming any comparative advantage in, in making a, investments. So that's like basically the, the deposit role, the, what we call the liquidity insurance role. So liquidity is the usefulness of having a cash accessible at all time. Um, so if I'm, if I'm on my own, basically I need to carry cash around, but if I can instead use a bank, the bank can basically insure me against the risk of needing cash at a certain point by offering these, um, these deposit contracts that, that we have nowadays. That is, by the way, this like work by Diamond Divic. Um, they, they were the first to really formalize this, and that is what they got the Nobel Prize in Economics for just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that's that's already certain several roles of banking, but from the point of view of the depositor. Now, another branch of banking, or of our understanding of banking, is that maybe a bank is also better at making investments than, than I as an individual would be. Because, for example, maybe certain investments, they require a lot of, of capital. Um, this really became a big issue in, in the 19th century with industrialization when you needed to buy these big machines, when you needed to, like when, when the railways... Really very large capital expenses basically that need to be laid out, which no one individual is there exactly, even exactly. But if you pull them together, you can... Exactly. So then, abstracting for a moment from the whole deposit story we said, maybe even, even if it's just about making sure that we can invest these, these pro- like that we can create these projects which are useful for society, then maybe a bank as a, as a more of an investment bank becomes becomes relevant because then by pooling um, by pooling the wealth of several individuals they can they can allocate capital better. Um, and now so this second story is about if you think of a balance sheet of a bank, you know, on the one hand we have the assets, on the other hand we have the liabilities. So this the investment story is about the asset side of the bank's balance sheet. The whole thing we talked about before, the convenience, the liquidity insurance for depositors, that is about the liability side. Hmm. Now, combining this gives the bank a comparative advantage in both sides because on the one hand, it is better at making these, these good investments. On the other hand, because me as a depositor, I value the fact that I can use a bank deposit to make a payment and to, to withdraw cash, that means that I am willing to accept a lower interest rate than if it was purely an investment. So that means the bank can actually get cheap funding from like from people like you and me, and they can make better investments than you and me could do on our own. So this like combines the two big big roles of banking. Yeah. And yeah, makes yeah. makes this very interesting. I suppose even with um, I mean, not just sort of allocating resources, what I mean, but banks will also have dedicated you know investment bankers or you know who is literally who is their their job basically just to sort of analyze uh, investments and that's all that you know and with anything right if you specialize in something well you're not always better at it but you know that you've got a higher yeah. likelihood of, of or at least over time gathering expertise um training and opinion so then yeah so they're more probably more to just have the infrastructure in place to make better investment decisions as well which is obviously like a big part of that yeah exactly. and um i mean that's what's Part of this is as well as the different <clears throat> we've mentioned the different types of banking roles and you know that's sort of the investment banking side, yeah. But then we've got the retail banking side, which is you know potentially sort of um, 
you know, supplying mortgages and things like that, which obviously also affects the economy in a very different way because housing, because obviously mortgages are almost institutionally used for housing, um, which is a massive, particularly now days, it's, you know, it's, it's considered almost like an investment vehicle for an individual, right? So I'm going to lock up wealth in this thing and that's basically yeah. going to be like my retirement, right? And I think for 99.9% of people, like their house will be the most expensive, the largest asset they will own in their lifetime. Um, very few people, maybe some people have very large businesses, right? They're fortunate enough to have those. Um, but for most people, that is the case. And so that affects the markets you know, in a completely different way. You know? And the, the rates at which you can sort of lend and borrow money out. Is it going to affect potentially the supply and demand for housing and the, the prices of those assets as well, which I think is quite interesting. I mean, the whole um, concept around ha- a house being an investment good as opposed to a consumer good, I think is a very, I think it's just an interesting topic as well, because I think particularly if you go back, that, you know, it's, you know, to different points in history as well, it was definitely more of a consumer good as opposed to an investment good. Obviously mm-hmm. land and stuff, you know, that's you know, fair enough. But particularly nowadays, it's so intrinsically linked to people's wealth. Um, is it because banks have been so diversified as well? Because some of these investment, you know, these aren't just separate banks, right? So you have a, many many banks will have a retail sec- banking sector. They'll have an investment banking department. Right. They'll have you know all these other different areas. Although there are places that you know sort of like, you know isolate themselves and like right, you know, building societies for example. You know, they're not even banks, right? But they, you know, they're operate in a similar way and want to provide sort of retail mortgage funding is it do you think that the way that banks have basically been able to sort of amalgamate into all these different roles has led to some changes in the economy over time for like the better or worse of of the the everyday consumers and the people and the public yeah I mean it definitely changes changes the way the economy works and these things work Um, and whether it's I mean it's very hard to say whether it's better or worse um, again, like if you think about mer- mortgages, the fact that like the banks, as you say, retail investment banks combined, that they are the ones providing mortgages, this will typically make mortgages cheaper than if, if this would be a fully separate business, because again, the banks can fund themselves very cheaply because they issue these convenient deposits. Right. So that is like, that means the bank is willing to give you a mortgage uh, for a lower rate than, than someone who would just um, sure. have to fund And the same with investment as investment bankers, they have isolated sort of skills and people that are dedicated to that, you know, specialization in retail banking. They'll have all the same people doing that, but also sort of looking at individuals and what, you know, because obviously, you know, if someone that's had a very good credit score or over a period and they'll be able to calculate that, can probably get a better interest rate and that, you know, all those kind of things as well. So it's the same kind of thing in that regard as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah. And then, I mean, on the one hand, this means that it gets cheaper to get a mortgage. But now the question is, what does this do to, do to the housing market? Maybe this just props up housing prices and in the end, we're actually not better off. I mean, I mean this is definitely something that I've been thinking about, you know, recently. You know, when you look at, it's like anything, right? If, if you make a good or service cheaper to do, that's going, in all likelihood, that's going to, you know, increase demand for that good or service. And in this yes. case, it's mortgages, yeah. right? Um, if you increase the, you know, that happens, you increase the demand for mortgages, well, what does that do? That means more people are going to want to have mortgages, exactly. which means that, well, that means more people are going to buy houses. Well, that means that's what's going to push house prices up. Yeah, I mean, especially because housing is in somewhat fixed supply, right? Because of zoning laws and everything, it's not easy to just but produce, build more houses. Especially, it's a, especially of, it's a very regulated industry. Yes, it's it's not regulated. like, you know, you know, it's not like... 
I don't know, a microphone company where you can just buy, you know, and set up and go, right? There's so many regulations. It's a very, you know, the utility sector is, again, very similar, probably even more so, right, with regulation stuff around it. But also scarcity of land. There's only so much land. Yeah, no, exactly. So, yeah, in the end, it's not obvious that, like, making the mortgage rate cheaper actually makes it easier for people to buy houses because maybe if we had to pay 2% more on our mortgages, but instead house prices would be... 30% 30% less than probably would be, we would be happier than we are. Well, I mean, so. uh, I mean, I'm trying to record this statistic over the, like, the top of my mind, but I, I remember reading something in an article not too long ago, and it was, it looked at um, house prices as a proportion, as a percentage, or a ratio, sorry, as opposed to people's annual salary. Because again, from 95% of the population, the most of their income and resources are coming from their, their, their salary job, right, mm-hmm. you know other people have investments and dividends and most people want pensions and things like that but most of it is coming from salary right so that's where their, their ability to purchase goods assets is going to come from and i think it was something along the lines of you know 50 to 60 years ago that the average house price in the uk was approximately three and a half four times the average annual salary in the uk mm-hmm. you compare that to now where it's Unbelievable, you know, it's I can't remember what it was, but it's like seven, eight, nine, ten yeah. times. I mean, the average salary in the UK is approximately well, you know, depending on what metric you use, right, is anywhere between sort of 27 to 40, approximately again, mm. depending on rate, job, and stuff. And the average house price is all the way up in sort of the hundreds of thousands, right? right? Um, and is that again just a bit, is that a symptom of the fact that mortgages have become so cheap because? particularly when I've been talking to my parents and people of their generation about this as well, interest rates, particularly of their generation, in that sort of, in a window, basically, I think post, you might have to correct me on this, but sort of post, sort of late 70s, up until sort of, you know, early 2000s, interest rates were very cheap. Mm-hmm. It, um, there, um, there were periods in there where potentially higher, 10%, 15%, I think, it's mm-hmm. but it's been, money's been very loan or loans have been very cheap up until now and I think potentially with the way the markets are going you know with interest rates sort of skyrocket I think we might be seeing a slight correction in that uh, yeah no I mean cheap mortgages are certainly part of the story but I don't think it's the main part it's like I guess demographics are an important part like people getting older um, a larger percentage of, of people living nowadays are older than used yeah, to be 50 definitely. years ago that plays a role Regulation, as we said before, in terms of like how many houses are actually being built, but also just the scarcity of land, as you mentioned. And then also what you mentioned a bit earlier about this whole idea of housing as an investment tool. So I guess that goes back to the globalization of finance as a whole, finance and banking, that nowadays many like rich people um, are just looking for, for high returns on their, on their wealth, on their savings. And they figured that investing in, in real estate is, is one way to do it. So um, so the fact that these markets are more, way more globalized now that like people from um, other countries in Europe or other continents right, even so, can, so can invest in the UK housing market. Yeah, right, I mean, that's a completely other side of the globalization <laughs> and not just globalization in terms of interaction as well, but sort of online uh, improvements in finance and banking. I mean, you, you mean you go back... 50 years 
it was actually there were actually quite a lot of limitations like just to let's say um, play in the stock market say play but you know invest in the stock market you usually have to go for a broker there's lots of forms there were fees that involved now now I can go on trading 212 or any of these apps sign up with my passport yeah. and I can start them which is I can only assume massively widened this the power base for basically people actually investing in the markets and it's actually you know it's not just in terms of like supply as well or like demand for those kind of services you've also seen some things you know that actually the markets have changed in terms of confidence levels you know i don't know if you're aware of things like meme stocks that have been Mm -hmm. like sort of certain thing where where literally groups of people have been able to sort of group together and change the outcome i mean that's i mean i don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing um, you can make an argument that banks, the sort of high-profile banks, were doing that anyway, and then now it's just letting consumers in on the, the sort of play of it as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a massive, massive shift just in the exposure, and and, and quite frankly, we take it down to even basic level, the internet and ability to look up information means that people are more aware about financing, banking, and than ever before. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. as well. So I think that's that has just I think led to just an extra demand for banking financial services that have had sort of these knock-on effects in the economy and obviously that also you know makes it a lot easier for you know previously if you want to buy a house in the uk in all likelihood it would be someone in the uk that would be right. likely to purchase it even even if they were you know it take the you know the consumer side out for the home even an investor would more likely that maybe europe right but now, you know, I've, you know, I've just said that I've just moved out of my flat, but it's owned by um, a lady that lives over in China who out, right. out, outsources the, the the running of that to, um, like, basically a maintenance sort of a maintenance company. And she basically has to do absolutely no work on it. And it's a prime example of how money is now able to pull in sort of specific places, particularly around places like London, which mm-hmm. is where I've come from. Yeah, and my sense is that this is still quite asymmetric. So I think an issue of that is that it's not symmetric in the sense that here in Europe and, and in the Western world more generally, like this people saw, people who are wealthy they're still looking for for high returns and also for stability and safety. Yep. And they know that even though we democracies are in turmoil, they still know that the, the West is best at providing these these features. It's much harder for us or for wealthy UK businessmen or US businessmen to to invest in the Chinese real estate market or in or in the Chinese market more generally. So you will have way more um, flows of, of capital and wealth from outside Western Europe and, and North America than, than the other way around, which I think is is why we see these inflated house prices particularly. Well I mean I mean I think something, you know, it's all it's always all over the news, right? Yeah, the amount of High, you know, value properties in the central London that aren't even, you know, aren't even occupied, right? Because they're just outside investors have gone in to purchase them, which then drives up the price for everybody in London, right? And London's a bit, not not the most expensive city in the world, but it's up, you know, it's, 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 it's up there. Um, I actually don't know how that that potentially change with the outcome of like Brexit and potentially, you know, a lot of, quite frankly, a lot of large companies and banks have started moving their operations and headquarters to Europe in the mainland because whereas previously London was the finance centre for pretty much the world, them in New York, right, the Alpha Plus Plus cities, um, and obviously that, that led them right into the, the, the European market because of the European Union. I wonder whether as businesses potentially and banks and institutions look to 
maybe use those institutions more in potentially sort of Germany or Switzerland or those kind of places that will actually see more of those moving out and maybe there could even be a slight correction downwards potentially and things like that. I don't know. That's completely... Yeah, it's certainly possible. I mean, I guess the the role as a financial centre and the the role of um, outside investors investing in the housing market are somewhat separate. I'm I'm not sure, I guess, like the the regulations of how easy it is for foreigners to buy real estate within a within a European country, I think, is probably not done by the EU. I, I'm, I'm assuming that the UK has is a bit more lenient on this than, than other countries. I know Switzerland, which is outside the EU but still has like um, very strict rules for um, for foreigners to to purchase housing, especially as as a as an investment uh, vehicle. Like it's uh, if you're if you're living in a house in Switzerland as a foreigner, then you can purchase it. But if you want to purchase it just as an investment, um, that usually needs a, a special, um, um, a special legislation because it's not uh, it's not allowed generally. So there's certainly um, things you could do with regulation for for these kind of uh, issues. And I, again, I don't know whether the EU has some regulation in place for that or whether any con- every country has its yeah. own regulation. Well, Potentially, then, maybe it's just that the UK is very lenient then on those kind of um, controls, yeah. potentially. We were talking a lot about houses, I suppose, at the moment. Um, but we talked like a little bit uh, earlier about, you know, sort of those flows in towards more developed, you know, I, I don't know, developed's an interesting term, right? I don't know what you would necessarily call developed. There's lots of different messages, but I'll, I guess I'll say Western, yeah. just for the sake of saying, you know, right. people, just for the familiarity, I guess, mm. what people will be familiar to. And those flows into those because of those institutions and the safety. One of the big issues that at least I've noticed, particularly in developing economies, which is starting to get a little bit better now, I'll say in a second, was the access to financial services exactly. on a regular basis and actually from the from the sort of ground up grassroots level. It, from the even just for loans and mortgages, but also loans to get businesses up and running, you know, that that's you know um, just their access to those finance finance financial institutions such as banks is actually partly why they haven't been able to develop or as much as they would have liked to. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we know that, I mean, that's the thing with banking, right? We talked a lot about banking already and about its roles and also about its issues to some extent. And like one key finding in, in all banking research is that banking typically improves things. So as you say, like it is important that like in, in developing countries that you make these services available, that you make it available for people to deposit, safely store their money and also for people to get loans and and to receive credit to purchase houses, to make investments, to start businesses, everything that is that is typically improving the economy. But it also we also know that it makes the economy more um, prone to to fluctuations and to to like certain <laughs> kinds of of failures and crises. So that is basically um, still like a bottom line is still that banking that banking improves um, things, but it it just comes with these uh, with these um, instabilities. Sure, and particularly in those kind of developing or less developed um, economies, it's it's not even necessary. There's been actually been some great work been done with, by sort of microfinancing work that's been done out in those countries. I think, and I kind of understand this, if, if there's a worry with cor- a level of corruption and things like that, I think that with, if you were to put it, to sort of encourage those larger banks, well, first of all, one, corruption within those banks and whether, you know, 
links to the, sort of the government and whether how much of those resources and how well they're being applied. But also, quite frankly, that some of these larger banks, you know, they want a level of safety when they're loaning out money. And I don't think, you know, there's necessarily the, the, the framework enough for doing it. But I think there's been some good work done on sort of the microfinancing level, which I think is really important. Because as I've kind of mentioned before, it does help lubricate the economy from mm-hmm. whatever way, allocate sort of resources and allow sort of development and growth. I mean, not that there's like there's other reasons, right? You know, but if you take sub Saharan Africa for a reason, you know, there's a lot of environmental reasons in terms of just geography, right? And so, like Kenya, for example, has a very hard time with droughts, which mm-hmm. if you're a primary sector, you know, farming, agriculture, those kind of industries, that is going to affect you rather considerably. Um, yeah. No, and actually, banking was very important for the agricultural sector. Specifically, I mean, there's also in Europe many examples of these kind of farmer banks originally that like yeah, actually yeah, were, had a big role in, in providing credit to farmers to exactly like be less um, exposed to these to thing, things like uh, drought, droughts or something because as a farmer typically you need to first you need to invest you need to buy the, the seeds and everything and you need to maybe buy some machinery and then there's the harvest so only after the harvest you you have an income so. Even without any droughts or anything, this is a an issue, um, and you kind of need a credit to to go ahead and, and farm at least in a, in a larger scale. And then on top of that, if, there, if there's something like a drought, then um, yeah, then you even have lot, then you need some kind of insurance against this. And and these are exactly the things that banks can provide, and that banks did provide in, in Europe again in like the 18th, 19th century. Um, and this is hugely important for economic development um, and of course it requires some sort of environment where like there's some legal stability where you can both as a banker and as a as a farmer who receives a credit or makes a deposit that you can kind of trust the system that this is going to work as, as planned and at the same time you need to be um, safe from from government coercion that's the other issue like if you you can either have a very unstable country where there's um, many legal issues but you can also have a country which is very stable but where the government has so much power that you never know whether the government is going to take away your, your money so this is like True. a fine line that you have to walk and it is and it is tricky right because there are i mean there are perfect examples as well of those very uh, autocratic governments doing very very like doing encouraging great growth but there's also examples of them driving the economy into the ground basically you know you can talk about china a very sort of sort of well, such a communist state um sort of centrally planned but they've managed to do a lot of growth now that they've actually had some of the, some of those issues recently i think there's potentially going to be a crash in china essentially with the how you know housing yeah. markets and how much of their economy is based around um infrastructure basically um, but even if you look at somewhere like the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, right, that is a kingdom for all intents and purposes. Uh, we have lots of oil reserves, um, which has been sort of their primary thing. But then you can, but they you know, they've been a great success story in that regard. Um, but there's other places like Yemen and Oman, which also have great oil reserves that are nowhere near that. So it's, I don't know whether it's a case of if you just get the right group of government or ruling officials, then it right. I don't, I'm not too sure. But the corruption and the political side of it, in terms of actually the administration of like nations, countries, does seem to be an issue that I don't necessarily. Like, it seems to be more of an issue potentially than sort of the availability, you know, the availability of those 
banking infrastructure, and if there was more stability, potentially you actually have more of those. Would yeah, you say I that's exactly, a, would you say that's like one of the big like at least one of the main factors in why there aren't more of those banks operating in some of those less developed countries, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa or. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the details. I'm not a like a development expert, but I think it's it's part of it, and and maybe a bigger part of it is that like if if these countries would provide the sort of stability that is necessary for these to develop, then you would also see actually inflows of like these these funds that flow into the UK housing market at the moment, which is probably detrimental to welfare because it's like <laughs> just an overinvestment. If these flows would would if these funds would flow into sub-Saharan Africa instead. Uh, and fund like um, businesses there. I think this would be much more beneficial because I I think the like the actual economic rents that can be made there in terms of like profitable investment opportunities, which benefit both the investors but also the people there, because you can build, you can start building up industries and uh, which then provide jobs for the local uh, population. And everything. I think this would like make both the UK housing market and uh, and these countries better off, but you need a certain sure. I mean, in, in fairness though, it's it's one. I mean, this is kind of game, well, kind of brings one to central banks to an extent, but it, it, particularly within the last several decades, there has been a level of investment into infrastructure, particularly in places like Africa, for example, primarily from China and the, the government oh, that's there, true, right. Yes. Now that's come with some benefits, right? So, like the port of Mombasa, for example, that's you know, a, a major port, like along that region, that allows them to trade, gives them sort of the ability to again just the infrastructure to be able to trade. But there have been questions over, like you know, the loan length, how good the loans actually are, um, the fact that it, it was written literally. I think I believe at least many of these contracts that if they default on these loans, that then China just gets the. They just own the actual infrastructure outright, which basically means yeah. that, and potentially as well, the political coercion, I suppose, or persuasiveness that have you know, thing that, that China's been able to, to implement. Is it potentially that actually, if other countries or other back central banks or other sort of even private banks, in, to be quite frank, from different nations across the world and different to, to even developed economies, but other economies as well, do you think we'd that that mitigate some of those issues potentially yeah I mean certainly the the fact that these um, countries are relying on China as an investor is is a sign that they don't get the, the, the investment funds from from other sources and I mean of course a country like China can always offer more favorable terms than than the market would would offer maybe so there's always a, a danger of um, someone with like I mean these investments from China come with some strings attached whereas like if you just have the market investing as like uh, nobody nobody has a huge stake but like large uh, large number of individuals have small stakes in it then you wouldn't have these these political strings attached now any any large player can always if they see some added benefit beyond just uh, just the return on investment they can always offer more favorable terms but but I guess at the moment uh, the choice is not so much there because um, the markets are not um, bringing these funds in, into these countries yet which I guess again is mostly due to the to the lack of stability there and the, and the fear of um, sure I mean is it a matter of time like are we moving in that direction or do you mm-hmm. think it's, it's something like a key issue that has to be solved before that you know those kind of institutions can be sort of created and sort of 
operating those markets more effectively at least yeah I'm, I guess it's hard to say I mean my, my sense is that banks are very keen on finding investment opportunities so I'm, feel, I'm feeling like if they sense that the that the returns are there they would they would try to enter these markets so I guess it's really a, a matter of ensuring stability um, which is then always hard to say who should do it because if if the West is doing it, this is kind of paternalizing. So, if it would ideally arise like itself there, but it's of course difficult. Sure, and like we kind of touched on it already with sort of China and other ones, but obviously central banks play <clears throat> a very, very different role to sort of privatized institutions. Um, so I guess that's sort of the key. So I guess we're good to, good to go over actually what the difference is, quite frankly, between a central bank and a sort of private institute bank institution. Yeah, so exactly, bank, a central bank is um, very, very different from a private bank. I mean, one role of the central bank is some is what we sometimes call the lender of last resort. It's like that the, that the private banks, they, they lend to businesses and maybe to people who get a mortgage to buy a house. Um, so basically, they lend to to the economy and to people like you, you and me, to retail. Um, now, if there's an issue, then we learned, um, particularly in the 19th century, that um, it's important that we can have some kind of insurance um, that these banks don't fail. Because we know that if these banks fail, this has large re- repercussions in the economy that go beyond just um, the immediate investments they made, and that like can can lead to sort of freeze of economic activity because everything's linked with these banks and if they fail then mm. anything stops working so that's why we, nowadays we have these central banks which as one of their roles they, they lend to they they are ready to lend to these banks if these banks face trouble in particular if they face what we call a liquidity crisis which is that they are actually solvent they make good investments but these investments are long term and they can't get the, the money out um, short term Especially in that case, the central bank can step in and lend two banks and kind of smooth this over. Uh, more generally, I mean, I mean, originally the central banks uh, arise because, um, or some central banks at least, because countries like Sweden or the UK, they needed to fund um, wars and then they uh, actually um, were a vehicle to, to raise money. Um, so there's still a little bit of that, that, uh, that um, central banks, because they have the privilege of Printing money and um, increasing the money supply, um, which, is a, which is a quite a fundamental difference yeah, in the day, right? The ability. Yes, to absolutely. Um, right. I mean, there's this is not so easy to understand because a private bank by by um, creating deposits is also creating money. I mean, basically, if you fractional reserve, right? Yes, exactly. In the fractional reserve system, the the private banks can create money. And the, the money we have in our bank accounts is not actually directly backed by the central bank. It's, it's created by, by the private bank. Now, still, the central bank has tools to limit the amount of money um, private banks are creating. So um, the, private, the central bank is still in control of, of the money supply, at least with some, um, with some lacks. Um, yeah, so the privilege of, of being able to create money is a huge difference for between central banks and private banks. And it can help to fund um, state budgets, although we understand more and more that um, we should avoid doing that because it will typically only lead to inflation if you start to 
do that in a larger scale. I mean, this is what happened in Germany in the 1920s with the hyperinflation, or in, in Zimbabwe more recently. Like once you, once the government runs out of options to fund itself through taxes or through raising um, debt, they try to print more money, but it it turns out that this typically only leads to inflation. So nowadays the role we think um, central banks should play, besides being these lenders of last resort, is to to ensure that inflation is, is stable and yeah. low because there's a basic understanding that low inflation is, is better for the economy than high inflation. Um, so this means that central banks are have an important task at the moment to try to bring inflation back down because it's now right. around 10%, which um, it hasn't been for 30 years, I guess. So now it's uh, yeah. now we need to see whether they're still able to do this. On top of that, there's also some idea that central banks should try to ensure um, high employment. So there's some belief that monetary policy, um, which is what central banks do, monetary policy is basically de- determining the overall level of interest rates in the economy and determining the overall m- amount of money that, that circulates in the economy through through affecting these things. Um, there's a belief that central banks can affect the real economy and um, especially employment so there's also some expectation from the public to the central banks that they that they do that as best as possible and like maximize in employment basically yeah and uh, yeah I think it's just that's something I, I, don't, I know a little bit less about as well the, the ability of um, central banks in terms of sort of financing of wars central bank again I just don't really know much about this but are they playing much of a role in fund, you know, the current wars going on in Ukraine um, I don't know to be honest whether like um, the US for example who is like um, giving a lot of money to the Ukraine and resources more generally whether they fund these through central bank operations um, I mean system is a bit more complicated these days because typically what happens is that the government increases the amount of debt but in countries like the US or also the UK a large share of government debt is actually held by central banks so what typically happens is that the treasury um, issues new debt and then the central bank goes on the market and buys that debt by buying that debt uh, it also keeps interest rates at the, le- at the level it wants to because if, if it wouldn't buy the debt there would be a larger supply of that debt, um, which then means that typically the price would go down. The interest rate the government needs to pay on its debt is the inverse of the price of the, of the debt. So um, a lower price would imply a higher interest rate. So that's why a central bank then buys that debt to keep the interest rates at its desired level. So through such operations, it can still indirectly basically shovel money into governments and thereby maybe also help funding a war or do whatever the, the government is doing. Yeah, I think uh, the creation of money, I think, is a very specific area of like central banks where they just deviate absolutely massively from everywhere else, particularly, you know, and then monetary policy is like a, something that obviously gets, you know, some big instrumental tool. And quite frankly, a lot of economists will say that, you know, is that some people <clears throat> are more pro it than others, I would say, I think. The creation of money in particular sort of financial crises does allow um, to, 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 does 
stop the, for the economy from going into a massive downward spiral and I think that does help because just by the creation of money people have more money in their pockets and because certain things are sticky in the economy it takes a while for the price to rise because that's the fundamental thing right if you increase the money supply money is not um, money is just a means of exchange it is not the actual sort of wealth itself it's just yeah. a means of exchange but at least in the short term period of where before prices adjust there is a, a period basically where you can People have more money, they could, they've got more disposable income, they can go out and buy goods in the economy, and certain businesses don't want to necessarily go out of business, they can survive a period. For example, like we just had in the pandemic of people being shut away for sort of, you know, a year or more on end, right? Um, but I think there was a bit of a debate over how much sort of monetary policy we should have used, because obviously that was used to sort of fund the furlough scheme and other schemes that were incorporated. And I think, uh, I think it was, you know, the amount of monetary policy that was implemented was probably quite un- unprecedented in quite frankly the history of like the UK um, I mean how central is that to I mean I think it I think it's very very central to it but you know how central do you think that is to the current sort of inflation that we're seeing and the consequences it's now having on the economy yeah it definitely played a role I mean Covid was a very different very special crisis and very different from other recessions we had um, one important distinction is that many people were actually able to save more during the pandemic than typically in a recession. What happens is that people, um, they throw down their savings, they, they, spend, um, they spend their savings and they, are, they end the crisis with less uh, wealth than, than they started with. Whereas during COVID, you just couldn't spend your money. So especially if you were like some office worker who could work from home and could... Um, continue earning their their um, their salary um, but you couldn't go out to f- have fancy dinners anymore you couldn't travel anymore you were actually able to, to save a lot more money than, than you would normally do and that certainly had an effect on on inflation and that then there was kind of this perfect storm by by having this increased demand because once the pandemic was over people were like now I can finally spend all that wealth that I built up and on the other hand, we still had uh, massive supply issues that, like, because um, the way um, supply chains were um, <clears throat> were under stress, um, given the different COVID regulations, the, um, the reduction in, in travel across the world, um, and, and all of these things, um, chips, chip shortages, and, and many things contributed to that which I still think we're still suffering from to an extent I haven't looked at it recently but I think we're still suffering from it particularly yeah yeah. so so these things came together and basically people wanted to buy more things and at the same time it was harder to produce these things and then naturally um, things became more expensive then there was also the labour market reacting um, demographics might play a role in the sense that some people might have been close to retirement then COVID hit and they were not able to work anymore and then maybe they um, decided to retire early. Also, many people maybe switched industries, like especially in the service industry. Um, people were not able to, to work um, as, as a chef or as a, as a server, so they maybe started working in other industries and then once these um, restaurants could, could open again, it was very hard for them to find workers. So that, um, on top of the supply issues we, I mentioned, this was another reason to to increase costs, and then this had to had to be passed on to, to prices. So exactly, and uh, and yeah, it's like I say, it's a very unique financial crisis in that standpoint, right? Because 
for all intents and purposes, and I think we're actually a lot of it. I think businesses are actually quite fortunately for the economy. We're starting at least office based white collar work. We're starting to look at more agile working and working from home, and some other you know, and particularly I know that they're moving out from very densely populated areas such as London, for example. I know, for example, I mean, this is well, when I was at university, I think PwC came and gave a talk and basically said, look, currently our most 60% of our activity is currently inside London, but in the next five years, it's going to be 60, 65% outside of London. And predominantly, they were doing that, obviously, for self, sort of self-interested reasons. But quite frankly, London's a very expensive, you know, for, you know, think of all the rental prices of property and things like that car in London. And for all intents and purposes, if you have people doing mostly administrative work that you could do from a laptop anywhere, why would you place that those individuals right. in those places? Where, um, as opposed to, let's say, Birmingham, for example, that's you know, the lowest cost of living, and so you can pay less. So there were already businesses, particularly white collar work, that were already doing that, and I think that that played into potentially some working from home, and that potentially a lot of firms like that were able to adjust to the financial crisis, this specific financial crisis, mm-hmm. more than other industries. Now, this is obviously very different. That's very isolated to white-collar service sector jobs, um, as opposed to, say, say, primary sector, secondary sector manufacturing mm-hmm. or you know, agriculture, for example, where you just have to be on site. Right. Right? Um, but even in that scenario, it's not like they were actually stopped from doing so. It was just policy in order to actually prevent virus spread once a vaccine had been um found and sort of implemented or you know things like masks and things like that people could almost immediately go back out at the exact same efficiency there wasn't any sort of loss of skills or knowledge or all that kind of thing as well and i say it's a very unique financial crisis in that, in that mm-hmm. standpoint i think right. i think the uk quite frankly had the fastest rate of you know gdp growth and i think i've seen it at least in my lifetime you know, sort of the, the year after the pandemic was like seven and a half percent, which I don't think I've ever seen in the UK have that for a long, yeah. long period of time. But it's because it was the the industries themselves weren't nearly as detrimented as where they were. Let's say in like say a housing you know, the financial crisis in that sense, where banks go bust, people lose their savings, and that that has a real impact on the economy. I guess. Uh, and part of that as well is that allows that to happen is like things like the furlough scheme that was funded through monetary policy because back, you know businesses are able to stay open because quite frankly they need to pay rent and things like that and that's very important I think and I don't think I've met many individuals that say it was that none of that should have occurred I think some at least from what I've gathered is that we went a bit there was almost too much use of it though you know the level of extent of printing X amount of money. I think it was something like sort of an extra quarter of the, of the current money supply was basically printed, right. right? Which is a hell of a lot. And when you look at that, seemed like a very short-term solution to a problem that did not take into account the longer-term effects. And now, when we're looking at, and I will absolutely say there are, in terms of the price level inflation occurring, like we could not have done more in as a UK. United Kingdom's country, in order for there to be a situation where inflation would hit, we've had a, you know, there's a war going on in sort of in the east um, of <laughs> of Europe where we get up where to, from for countries where we either get one a lot of the uh, grain from Ukraine right. being the breadbasket of Europe, so that pushes up food prices because they aren't Russian. 
Russia, which surprised a lot of the energy prices, and quite frankly, energy goes into everything. Exactly. So that's those prices have been inflated. We have left the European Union, which means now that our closest trading partners now have tariffs and checks and border controls, but checks on goods and services, which increase costs for trading between borders with our closest partner that we have 54, 55% of our global GDP trade with. Um, we've done the most amount of monetary policy in quantitative easing that we have in the, the, the country's history. And we had a COVID-19 pandemic as well that, that also has limited supply chains and made things more right. expensive um, to get hold of and you know, all sorts. So I'm, I'm certainly not just blaming monetary policy and banks <laughs> for that. There's been a, a constellation of factors, but I think there's been... No. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was a, it was really a kind of a perfect storm. I guess talking about monetary policy um, a bit more narrowly, taking all of these other factors into account. I guess, I mean, you mentioned the furlough scheme. I guess what was important there, or what would have been important, is just to make it as targeted as possible. Because as I mentioned before, like many people were actually saving more during the pandemic than they were usually. So if you end up sending money to these kind of people... It doesn't have the effect that you you, you want it to. Exactly, you're you're yeah. just printing money for the sake of it. Yeah, so I don't know uh, the details about the UK program. I've, my understanding is that it was targeted um, fine. Um, I think the US had more of an issue with that, that they just sent... From what I've read, there were issues with the UK. From what I've managed to gather, the, I, the other countries seem to have had... At least some, I mean, some better, some worse, right? I think in America, I've heard cases of very large businesses being able to claim an enormous amount of those relief funds that are actually, you know, took away from the companies that actually needed it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the other thing we should mention about monetary policy and its role in the current rise in inflation is is what happened before COVID and basically what happened between the financial crisis and and the onset of COVID um, and. Uh, a monetary policy changed quite radically in that period because before the financial crisis, what they would do is they would uh, manage basically the interest rate in the economy by keeping the amount of reserves that banks, so banks in most countries are forced to hold some amount of reserves and therefore by limiting the amount of reserves in the system, the central bank could um, fix the interest rate that banks between each other um, pay on these reserves. Now, um, after a recession, typically central banks want to lower interest rates to um, to um, lubricate the economy, as you said earlier. Um, but they soon after the financial crisis run into the zero low amount problem, which meant that interest rates were at zero. And once you're at zero, uh, because just holding cash gives you an interest rate of zero uh, always, uh, means that it's hard to, to go below zero because then the cash is always an alternative. You can just basically take out your money of the bank and, and hold it as cash. Well, yeah, I mean, if, yeah, you just take... Well, I mean, you can't... Well, there are some limiting factors to it. You can't... If you have, like, a, you know, multi-millions, of, you know, the, you, do, you don't really want to take out that much money and just have it in your house, right? There's a safety aspect to banks that, you know, yeah. people sometimes, you know, do, there's a safety to it that, you know, people do sort of discredit. But to that point, if you're just... End, negative interest rate basically means you're just paying the bank to hold your money for you exactly you can just withdraw that money which would potentially be fine if it wasn't for the fractional reserve banking system in which the banks can basically loan out potentially 10 times more than what they're actually holding in reserves 
um, due to, like I say, the demand for people's savings, basically. Right, and in particular, the goal of lowering interest rates is to make sure banks lend even more than they were before, because typically in a crisis, the issue is that there's not enough lending, so then the economy slows down and the central bank tries to counter that by lowering rates. So if what you mentioned happens, if people start taking out their money of the banks, then you actually have the, the opposite effect. So this issue never really occurred before because interest rates were at higher levels. So right after the financial crisis, it was unclear whether lowering rates below zero would still have the desired effect or not. It's still not fully understood. Um, we, have, we have better understanding now, but still it's incomplete. But anyway, what central banks were doing instead was uh, what was called quantitative easing, what, what was just flooding the system with reserves, basically. So they went away from this system where they kept the, the amount of reserves limited and instead just gave the, the banks actually um, um, several times more than what they needed to fulfill the, the reserve requirements in the hope that this would um, stimulate banks to lend more and therefore to get the economy going again. And once we were in that system, it became very difficult to, to revert back to the old system and to take these reserves out of the system again. So like even um, ignoring whether or not this, this worked at the time, it just became very hard to take out that money. Um, um, and this worked fine as long as um, the system was kind of stable. But then again, after COVID, once we had these inflationary pressures, the banks actually had all these excess reserves sitting around, which made it very easy for them to create more money. And this also contributed to, to increasing inflation. So um, if we want to blame central banks, we shouldn't blame them too much about what they were doing during COVID, but we should blame them maybe more on not reverting the ship back to normal before, before COVID. Yeah. Although it's not obvious they could have done it, but that's just sure. contributed to it. And as much as you know, central banks are supposed to be, in theory, independent from government and you know, sort of policies and politics. In, in fairness, you know, you've seen that recently with like the you know the mini budget, and quite frankly, the Bank Bank of England taking a very <laughs> sort of staunch approach on that. Um, they are interlinked, you know, at the end of the day, and you know. The government introduces the furlough scheme, has to be funded some way, right? You know, these things have a, there's a cofactor in that, and they can't, you know, the policy that's coming from the government or the institutions also plays like a large role in it. But I mean, even the things with like, um, you know, the sort of printing money and things like that, you know, that's only necessarily possible because we have a fiat money system, right? You know, if you go back to the, you know, if money was still held at the gold standard, you know, talking about what we, you know, what we did at the start of this. Um, episode in that it used to be that banks used to hold gold or you know whatever it was you know resources materials right and it was a receipt right so like you hand it in it's a receipt this proof mm. that my money's in there I can trade that around basically to sort of, you know up until uh, the late 1800s you know it, there's a reason why you know you you would be able to go into the bank instead of a 20 pound note and take out that worth of gold essentially now you can't do that um, with current money because it's the fiat money and basically the, the, the currency is worth it what it is in exchange to other currencies you know you can't just print money that's backed by gold or other resources mm. because you can't print gold but you can do in these other systems so it's an interesting sort of role into work because a bit, there's a lot of this discussion around whether we should be going back to a gold standard there's even talk of um, Russia and China creating their own 
um, currency that's backed by gold um, again and sort of the pros and cons of whether we should be doing that or not yeah yeah I mean that's a big discussion um, I mean just adding to the historical dimension that you that you brought up I mean until the 1970s we were still on some sort of a gold standard because um, at the time there was still central banks were still standing ready to exchange the, the money they issued against gold at certain uh, exchange rates um, and that was like the and then in the 70s this system which was called the Bretton Woods system um, basically broke down um, now I don't think the like the gold standard has a, has a particularly good track record I mean if you look at the 19th century where the um, in many countries, there were no central banks. For example, in the U.S., the, the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve System, was not yet created. Um, banks were pretty much issuing their own money um, and backing it by by gold. But if you look at the nineteenth century, there were there were um, numerous financial crises and numerous issues. So now, of course, um, central banks do several things. They are the lenders of last resort, as we, as I mentioned. Um, so maybe. We should just have central banks that are lenders of last resort to prevent these crises, but not um, issuers of, of fiat money. But um, I still think that um, the, although the, the fiat money system has its issues, it's, it's uh, working much better than, than the gold standard system. I mean, also the financial crisis of the 1930s, the Great Depression, there actually it's nowadays believed that a big issue was that... Um, central banks were too reluctant to relax the, the gold standard and that there was actually not enough money in like the money supply at the time should have been increased much faster and much more aggressively to mitigate the, the crisis and if you're on the gold standard you just uh, if you keep being on the gold standard you can't do that because then the amount of money is just governed by by the value of gold and the value of gold might fluctuate for for reasons that have nothing to do with, with the real economy so um I mean, it is very important to have a stable value of money, and the provision of that is really the central role of, of central banks. But I'm not convinced that the gold standard is the best way of, of doing that. Mm. Yeah, and um, it's an interesting one as well, because quite frankly, I think a lot of the stuff you see online at the moment, if you look at the media stuff, is, is sort of very pro-gold standard, because I think at least there's a, a very common narrative, at least sort of permeating, that you know, the government's stealing your money for inflation and you know, so printing more money and that, you know, it's, you know, money is debt and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, almost just praises this gold, the gold standard is like this sort of like heraldic thing, right? You yeah. know, that's just like, you know, you know but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it is important to know there are sort of drawbacks, you know, there is a reason why we moved away from it to at least to some extent. We know whether, you know, we should be going back or not, you know, that's a separate issue, but you have to accept that there's pros and cons to each of these. Um, types of sort of currency institutions um so just like to round off on i think i'd like to sort of take a look at sort of what the, the future of banking is and what it what the industry looks like moving forward you know what do you see happening with you know, private or central in terms of the banking industry sort of moving into sort of the the later half the latter half of this century do you mean there's going to be great institutions you know things like cryptocurrency are coming in there's you know the disruptions in the market that could have you know significant changes in the same way that moving from gold to fiat did um and other areas that you think that potentially need to change but maybe won't potentially or you know that things that could be changed that could make the, the whole facility the, the banking industry more 
productive or useful or better for consumers as a whole? Yeah, I mean, maybe starting with the crypto aspect of the whole decentralized finance um, movement. Um, I guess this is certainly a big topic for the banking industry, but I don't think it's going to like bring down the banks as we know them. Banks have been very good at incorporating uh, new, new technologies and new developments in the economy into their business models. So I think what we already observe at the moment is that I mean, many, many people, if they invest, they invest through some sort of bank, whether it's a traditional bank or maybe more of an internet bank, online bank, but still in the end, these, these are very close to, to the traditional banks. And, and often we see that this then like conglomerates into the, the large banks that we already have. So in terms of the future and what we should um, do, maybe, I mean, I, I still think that um, the financial crisis of 2007 to 2009 was a big lesson and that many, but that many of the learnings we should take from there are not fully implemented. Um, I mean, the whole too big to fail topic has not really been addressed properly. I mean, there have been attempts to do it, but it's not really, in my opinion, has not been done in a, in a successful way. Um, I mean, I've, I think one way to address this would be to require banks to hold much more um, equity, to issue much more equity, to like fund um, themselves more strongly because nowadays they're funded almost entirely by deposits and other um, liabilities which just makes them very prone to um, to failure because if, if there is a bad event then like if, if the assets the banks invest in if they lose value then there's just very little equity to as a cushion to, to absorb this. Now as I mentioned earlier we know that having banking is um, is useful for an economy and it's, it comes with its downsides. So we have to accept some of these um, dan- dangers, but still we should try to to um, make sure the banks are set up as well as possible to, um, to mitigate these. And I think there's more to be done. And my sense is that after the financial crisis, the direction was more like adding more regulation but that was very specific and the regulation has its drawbacks also because it will then for example prevent entry from from new banks which then gives more market power to existing banks lets them extract more rents from from their customers so instead of having complicated regulations that typically end up benefiting the existing banks i think we should have very simple rules like increase the amount of equity they hold and things like that and maybe think about separating certain certain areas of banking, although I'm not sure it would, um, this would be the solution, but it's something we should think about at least. Yeah, excellent. And uh, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I think it's been really cool to sort of chat about this stuff. I think it's just very prevalent right now, quite frankly, in terms of like where we are, particularly in the UK. So yeah, I really appreciate you taking the second time to sit down with me. Thanks. Uh, it was very nice talking to, talk to you. I think it was very interesting. Uh, we talked about lots of things. And yeah. <laughs> Got a good range in there, in fairness. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for watching this episode of the Marginal Babble podcast. If you did enjoy, please give us a like and comment down below for any future topics you would like to see discussed. But until then, see you soon.